So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to grab them or maybe grab a phone or a device that you have with you that has a Bible app on it. Turn with me to the book of Romans. If you've been with us over the last uh, three weeks, you have seen a face that is not mine. Uh, we have had, we've been blessed to have three RTS students from Charlotte who've come and preached for us, and they've uh, preached both in the Old Testament and the New Testament and, and led us in this time, but I'm glad to be back with you this morning and glad to be back in Romans with you. And we began this, this series in Romans uh, last July, and we have been slowly working our way through this book. Uh, we've been in Romans 8 for several months now, and, and this morning I'm happy to, to be able to conclude this chapter with you this morning. So I want to read to you from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31, and we will finish the chapter. Hear what Paul writes. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word. Thankful for the the beauty, the, the power, the encouragement, the renewal that your word brings. So, Father, as we turn our attention to, to studying your word, help us. For we cannot understand it unless you open our eyes. We cannot believe it unless you give us faith to believe. We cannot see it. We cannot hear it without your help. So, Father, help us. Spirit, help us. You who inspire these words, illumine our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, church, I want to begin this morning by, by thanking you for the last several weeks. Um, I've been away from the pulpit, and uh, this was, if you weren't familiar or weren't aware, the reason I was not here was, or not in the pulpit with you was so that I could have a few weeks to get some writing done for uh, my schoolwork. I'm working to, to finish my Doctor of Ministry degree and hoping to graduate in December, and so I've got some uh, a good bit of writing left to do. And so the, the church, you have been gracious to me in allowing me to have some time uh, over the last few weeks. I've got about 50 pages written over the last two weeks for this project, and still have a good bit of writing left to do. Uh, my, my project for this doctoral program is to train our, our elders to rightly handle God's Word. And to do that, I'll be needing these uh, about six 
training sessions with our elders in this practice of exposition. And so I've spoken with our elders, and they know that, that what's coming for them in this, but I, I want to offer this to you as, as our church. See, beginning on, on Monday, June, or June 26th, it's about two weeks away, we will have the, the first of these six training sessions. And we'll meet every Monday night for about an hour for the next six Mondays after that. And so while our elders are required to attend, and elders, you know this, you, are, you have to be there, you don't get an option, uh, I'd also like to extend an invitation to anyone else who would like to. Uh, you don't have to be a member of the church to come and be a part of this. Uh, really, if, if you would like to come to even one or all of the sessions, by all means, come. To put it simply, these sessions will, will focus simply on how to better read and how to understand God's Word. And, and that's something that every believer should be able to do. But you're invited. But if you can't come, will you please pray for us in the coming weeks? Uh, pray for me to be able to finish this writing. I've got a lot left, uh, and so I, I need and ask for your prayers in this. I also ask that you pray for our elders, that this training process would be an encouragement and an enabling of them to serve you better, and not a burden, and not uh, something that breeds anxiety. So church, I ask you to pray, and I invite you to, to join us. And don't worry about forgetting, if, it, if you're not writing it down, that's fine. We'll remind you every Sunday as we meet. But I'm, I'm glad, I'm thankful for the time away, but I'm glad to be back in the pulpit and, and back in Romans with you. This morning, as, as we come to this, this passage, we see right from the beginning how Paul asked this question in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? And we spent the, the last several months here in Romans 8, and so it's, it's helpful for me maybe to, to remind you of the, these things that Paul is talking about here. And we began in, in chapter 8, verse 1, where Paul says, There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have this assurance of salvation that we will never be condemned or cast out by God because of Christ. Then as he continued in verses 9, 10, and 11, Paul wrote, You are not of the flesh, but of the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. If the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he will also give life to your mortal body. And we have this assurance of life in Christ. Then in verse 15, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, that we have been adopted, we are his children, and we have this assurance of belonging. <coughs> Excuse me. In 23 and 24, Paul writes, not only does creation groan, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Paul encourages us by reminding us that we have this assurance of hope for the future. That though this world is, is breaking and wasting away, it will not be broken forever. Then in verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we are. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We have this assurance of help. Even in something as simple as prayer, we struggle and we fail to find the words, and yet the Spirit helps us in this weakness. And then a few weeks ago, we saw in 28, 29, and 30, that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. We 
have this assurance of purpose that all things, both good and especially the bad, that in all things, God is working for the good. And that ultimate good is to bring us to glory, to share in this glory with God for eternity. And so as you read verse 31, you can almost find yourself agreeing with Paul. What else then shall we say to these things? Yeah, Paul, you kind of said it all. What else is there to say? And yet, he's not done. <laughs> because here, he, he summarizes all of this in one major theme that has taken hold of this entire chapter that has now become clear. The entire theme of Romans 8, and really the entire theme of Romans chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, is this. God is for us. God is for us. He is on our side. He is working all things for our good. He is bringing us to glory. He is helping us in our weakness. He is providing hope for our future. He has adopted us and He is teaching us. He is transforming us to live as His children. He promises life to us, both now as we share victory over sin and later when He will raise our mortal bodies from the grave. He has promised that there is now and forevermore no condemnation for any and all who believe in Jesus. And I realize that it sounds like I'm just repeating myself here, but, but I need you to hear this this morning right from the beginning. God is for you. He is on your side if you are in Christ. And that is true today, it is true tomorrow, it is true every day into eternity. He will never change his mind on this fact. He is for us. And this, this truth, while, while it might not be the, the newest thing, it might not be something you've never heard before, I, I think that we need to understand just how shocking this truth is. Because do you remember what Paul wrote in Romans 1, Romans 2, and Romans 3? The, the nature of the wickedness that he described and then said, and this is your wickedness, this is your brokenness, this is your sin. How he, he details that, that we are not just bad people or good people who make bad choices, that through and through we are wicked. We are broken. We are sinful. And then even he makes the point that even when we run out of things to do that are evil, we invent new ways to do evil. And he said in Romans 3 that there is no one righteous, not even one. Not Jew, not Gentile, not the Pope, not Mother Teresa. No one is righteous. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages that the price of this wickedness is death at the hand of God. So how, Paul? How can, how can this statement that God is for us, how can that be true? How does the holy God, the righteous judge of the universe, how can he be on our side when our lives are worthy of one outcome, death? And the beauty of the way that Paul writes the beauty of Scripture is that Paul tells us, he does not leave us guessing, but he tells us that he gave up his own son for us. You see, this is the, the proof that God is for us. If we, if we ever doubt why God would be on our side, if we ever question his 
any way, we simply need to come back to verse chapter 8, verse 32. This is a verse you should memorize, you should have written on your hands, write it on your forehead so you see it in the mirror every time you look at it. Write it wherever you can, but do not forget this verse. That he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Paul's making an argument here from the greater to the lesser. He's saying if God did the hard thing, then surely he can do the easy thing. And the hard thing being giving up his son. That's the hard thing. That's the job that is unimaginable. And yet God did it. With everything else that comes in this life, everything else that we require, everything else that God must do for us, that pocket change. It's nothing. Because God did the hard thing. Certainly he'll do the easy thing. And I think as we, as we come to understand this verse, we, we need to understand two distinctions, two points of clarity in how this verse applies and how it doesn't apply. Because this verse is not a prosperity verse. This is not Paul saying that if God gave up his son for you, then he'll give you all the money in the world if that's the fact. And if God gave up his son for you, then he will make sure that you never suffer in any way, shape, or form. This is not what Paul's saying. This is not saying that since God gave up his son for you, that your life will be happiness and sunshine all the time, that you will not struggle with sin or weakness or sickness or financial hardship. Paul is saying that God has done the hard thing. The rest of it is easy. There's a, another point of, of clarity that, that must be made regarding this theme of, of God being for us. And really, it, it, it's a way that this theme has been used falsely as a, a, a call to arms for Christians. See, this, this thing is not a call to fight our enemies, but to trust that God will win the battle. How many times have, have we seen in history where people have done horrific, terrible deeds while reciting this very thing, God is for us? You know who goes into battle crying out, God is for me? Terrorists. And blow themselves up while believing and reciting and crying out, God is on my side. This is not a call to arms, but it is a call to rest. A call to trust. That in all things, God is working for your good. You've likely seen it all over social media and news outlets, these companies that are being boycotted by Christians for their, their stance on social issues regarding sexual revolution. And I, I'm, I'm not saying that Christians should support these companies. Don't, don't hear me say that. But what I am saying is that, that we as Christians should not enter into these social battles, these political battles, with this idea that God is on our side and he's going to give us the victory in this. Because it says so right here in Romans 8. That's not what this is about. And yet we so often go into these battles as if we're David marching against Goliath. And we even cry out like David did, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, and I will strike you down. Don't, don't do that. Christian, do you not realize that you're not David in that story? You're the, you're the frightened Israelite hiding in his tent under his cover because there's a giant who's threatening to kill you. 
No, we, we need someone else to come and fight for us. We need someone else to defeat the giant for us. Christian, you have a better warrior than David. Who already has crushed the head of that serpent. This victory is yours. Rest and celebrate it, because God is on your side. If God gave up his own son for us all, he will also give us all these other things too. Psalm 46 saying, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Church, we will not fear. God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? That doesn't mean there won't be opposition. There absolutely will be. But what it does mean is that no opposition will, will succeed. As Paul continues in this, in this passage, you get this, this almost a courtroom vibe where Paul, like a, a skilled attorney, begins laying out his argument in the form of question and answer. And he gives three separate questions, but really it's only one answer. It's the same answer for each one. Let me just walk you through these, these questions here. Look, look at the first question in, in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? I mean, you, you can hear the, the judicial language, this, this idea of, of filing charges like an attorney against a criminal. But the good news that Paul highlights is that the judge of the universe has declared you, Christian, innocent. And once that judge declares not guilty on all accounts, no other charges can be brought. Nothing more needs to be said. For you, in Christ, are declared not guilty. The case is closed. You see, as Christians, you will, you will never be short of accusers. They, they will say all kinds of things against you. They will bring your past up against you. They will point out all of your failures over and over again. And they will discredit everything that you say and everything you do with simple accusations, some painful, some false, some true. And it's so easy in those moments to, to, to have this desire to defend ourselves, to, to claim innocence from these charges, to, to push back against it. Let me just give you some advice. Don't, don't defend. Don't defend yourself against accusations, but instead embrace them. Because the reality is that whatever your accusers throw at you, whatever charges they make, the reality is that you are far worse than even they realize. I am reminded of the, the G.K. Chesterton article where he, he read in a, a local paper where the editor had asked a question to get responses from the readers, what is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton famously wrote back a very simple letter, Dear Mr. Editor, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Christian, you are worse than your accusers realize. You are worse than you realize. And I know that because I am worse than I am. And so you and I can embrace the accusation. We can embrace it and say, yes, this is true, and even more. But in that embracing these accusations, do not forget the refrain of the gospel that Jesus has saved even the worst of sinners, like me. You may be worse than they think you are, 
but God's grace is greater than any accusation they can throw at, true or false. And you can embrace these accusations because it is not your job to justify yourself. You can't do it. In fact, look what, how Paul answers this question. Who can bring a charge against any, any charge against God's elect? It is Patrick who justifies. That's what it says. It is God who justifies. It is God who declares righteous. It is God who, who pronounces not guilty over you because of Christ. And this he does. This he has done. Question number two. Look at verse 34. Who is to condemn? This question is similar, but uh, a different nuance, maybe. The first question dealt with this initial stage of the courtroom scene, that the charges being brought, being filed, they're brought before the judge. And this question deals with the end of that scene, the judgment, the sentencing, the condemnation. And just like the accusers, we're never short of we are never in short supply of condemners, are we? And yet so often the loudest voice of condemnation that we hear is not from the outside, but it's our own. And you know this feeling, you, you fall into sin again, you, you hit that same temptation, you stumble over sin, your weakness has reared its ugly head. And though you know that God forgives you, that the people whom your sin has hurt all have forgiven you, that voice inside your head that screams the loudest, shouting your guilt, crying out your judgment, your condemnation. If you have felt that, then you need to hear Paul's answer to his question. Who is to condemn? Who has the right to condemn you? Who has the authority to speak your judgment? The answer is no one. And see why. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Three works that Paul points out that Jesus has done that free you from condemnation. First, he died. His death in your place paid for your sins, every single one of them. He took the judgment for you, and there is no condemnation left, because it's all been poured out on him. Second, he was raised. His resurrection proves that his death was sufficient. It was the Father vindicating and, and saying that this sacrifice of the Son was good. It was enough. No more is required. And he vindicated his Son by raising him from the dead. And then the word number three is that he now intercedes for us. Having died and been raised, Christ ascended into heaven where he is right this moment. He is seated at the right hand of God, speaking your name. Which means this, Christian. Every time you sin, every time you stumble, when those accusers come with their charges against you, when the condemners come forward to cast you back into the pit of hell, it is in that moment that Jesus, the King, speaks your name to the Father and says, I paid for that. This idea of Jesus interceding for his people, praying for his people, should move us to have no fear of either accusation or condemnation. Robert Murray McShane said, he said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. And yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Christian, what enemies could you possibly fear knowing that Jesus is speaking your name to the Father? What op- 
obstacles could not be overcome because Jesus is indeed interceding for you? What accusation could be thrown your way? What condemnation could be made against you? Don't allow these, these voices of condemnation to, to overshadow the voice of your Savior. And don't you dare for a second think that it's okay for God to forgive you, but that you can't forgive yourself. That's a lie. You know what happens when we tell ourselves that we just can't forgive ourselves? Even though we know that God forgives us, we, we switch roles with God and we say the greatest offense that, I, that my sin has made is not against the creator of the universe. It's not against the righteous judge. The greatest one that I have offended is me. And I just can't forgive. Absurd. If God has forgiven you in a way that required him to sacrifice his own son for you, you have no reason to withhold that forgiveness from yourself. Or from anyone else. None. Who is there to condemn? No one. Not even you. Question number three. Uh, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This third question receives the, the longest discussion. In fact, it carries on to the end of the chapter. It's not just one verse, but it's the rest of Paul's time in Romans 8 that he focuses on this question. And yet the answer is the same as the first two. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. But Paul doesn't just say that and move on. He elaborates it. Which means that there's, there's something about this question that hits where Paul is aiming. Because you see, it's good that you know that Jesus forgives you. And it's good that you know that he silences your accusers and he promises never to condemn you. But how many Christians know these truths and yet have no work, no zeal, no passion for the love of Christ. See, Paul wants more for you than simple knowledge of the gospel. I want more for you than simple knowledge of the gospel. Paul wants your heart to be so gripped by the love of Christ that you rest in the assurance that nothing can separate, nothing can remove you from his love, ever. And so to prove this point, to, to elaborate on this, Paul provides a, a few possible potential separators. Just look at them there in verse 35. Verse, yeah, verse 35. Shall tribulation, this outward struggle, this conflict uh, coming against us, shall distress, inward struggle, anxiety, worry, fear, or persecution, unjust attack, or famine, or nakedness, this lack of essential necessities like food and clothing, or danger, or sword, life-threatening situations. Paul says, can any of these separate you, believers, from the love of Christ? Can these tear you from his grip? Of course not. And then Paul goes on to provide biblical support for his answer because he quotes Psalm 44, a psalm about the suffering of God's people. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You see these things, these examples that Paul gives, these possible separators, these aren't abnormal. Christian, suffering is normal for you. It is normal for the Christian life to experience suffering. It is not the exception, it's the rule. You will suffer in this life. 
you may not experience all of these things, but you will experience some of them. And don't let it surprise you when it comes. Don't, don't let it for one second convince you that when hard times come, when suffering comes, does this mean Christ has stopped loving you? Does this mean he's turned his face away from you? Absolutely not. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. And Paul finally gets around to answering this question in verse 37. He gives us this, this no. Who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. No one. But then he adds, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You see, it's in these things that Christ is at work. It is in tribulation and distress. It is in persecution. It is in famine and nakedness. It is in danger and sword. It is in these things that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's such an interesting phrase. More than conquerors. How can you be more than a conqueror? If you have an enemy and you defeat him in the battlefield, how can you do more than that? And yet this phrase takes us all the way back to, to verse 28. You see, it's not just that Christ will give us victory over these things. It's not just that he's going to give us victory over our enemies, but that he will turn these things, he will turn our enemies, he will turn our struggles to work for our good. That's what it means to be more than a conqueror. It doesn't just mean that you have victory over the hard times. It means the hard times end up working for you and for your good. And don't miss that very important final phrase. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is not some sort of individualist triumphalism where the Christian sings, all I do is win, win, win. Like, that's just not it. No, the only way this works, the only victory that we are given is through Jesus. Jesus is the champion. Jesus is the victor. And without him, we are not more than conquerors. We're not even conquerors. We're the conquerors. But through him who loved us, nothing will ever defeat us because nothing can defeat him. Paul, Paul ends this, this chapter and really this section of Romans that began all the way back in chapter 5 with this, this beautiful climax of, of certainty, of assurance in all of us. And you know, it's so easy to, to read through the facts and just sort of to treat it as though Paul just kind of got carried away and got caught up in the moment and just started lifting off things as, as quickly as he could think of them. And that's not what Paul does. Paul isn't ripping here. He's not spewing one thing off after another to make his point. Because look at how verse 38 begins. Because for I am sure. I am convinced. I know this to be true. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Do you hear this, Christian? It's not exaggeration. It's not ripping. This is certainty. This is assured. Here it again, but let me elaborate on it as we read it. Because this is what Paul is getting at. Because for I am sure that death itself cannot remove you from God's love. You could suffer for years. You could die a painful death, be buried 
body wastes away into dust, and you will still be loved. For I am sure that you can live for a thousand years, have an abundance of all this life, life has to offer, and you will be loved. For I am sure that every angelic being in heaven that legions upon legions of soldiers of God's heavenly army could gather together in unison with one mission to remove you from the love of God, and they would fail. For I am sure that if all 195 nations of this world united together, using their technology, their resources, their armed forces, their political savvy to remove you from the love of God, they too would fail. For I am sure that there is nothing that exists in this world or the next that has the power, the authority, or the capability to remove you from the love of God. For I am sure that the most powerful forces in the universe would fail to separate you from the love of God. For I am sure that if you were taken to the farthest heights and the regions of the universe, passing planet after planet and star after star and galaxy after galaxy, until you hit the very end of the universe, you would not be far enough removed from the love of God. I am sure that if you plunge down into the deepest parts of the ocean, crawling your way down into the trenches of the sea, digging even deeper down into the earth's core, there is no depth deep enough to remove you from his love. For I am sure there is nothing, and I mean nothing, that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a chapter of Scripture. This is a chapter that begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. When you are in Christ, you are in Christ. And nothing will change that ever. Church, you, do you know that? Do you believe this truth? If you do, then let this, let this passage move you to worship. Because it's easy to affirm the right truth and say yes to the right teaching. But so often our hearts grow cold and our hearts grow numb to the love of God in Christ Christ. Look again deeply into these verses and tell me you are not warm by them. And in that warmth, knowing and believing the love that God has for you, worship Him. Love Him. Because He loves you. And do not let the trials and the burdens of this life cause you to doubt this truth. Do not let despair grab hold and take away this glorious truth from your lips. God is for you. Philip Melanchthon was uh, one of the reformers alongside Martin Luther and John Calvin. He was, a, in a lot of ways, one of the first theologians of the Protestant Reformation, working to, to write down various confessions and address debates on theological controversies. And by, by no means was he perfect in this and often had to walk back some of the things that he had said or written. But he was a, a central figure to the Reformation, and he was, ended up being buried next to Luther in Wittenberg. He died, sadly, from a cold that developed into a bad fever and slowly weakened his body. But Kent Hughes uh, recounts the story of his final moments on this earth. So when, when Melanchthon sensed that he was uh, dying, he asked to be placed on the traveling bed in his study, because that is where he was the happiest. When the pastor visited him, the pastor began to read to him from Romans 8. And the pastor reached verse 31. 
Melanchthon stopped him and said, read that again. So the pastor read again, if God is for us, who can be against us? And Melanchthon then murmured in this kind of ecstasy, that's it. That's it. See, this text had always been the greatest comfort to him. And in the darkest hours of his life, when destruction threatened, he comforted, comforted himself again by reciting, if God is for us, who can be against us? In his last moments, when his, his son-in-law came to his side and asked if he needed anything, and with a smile, the Lincoln just looked up at him and said, nothing but heaven. there remains anything else to be said this morning, if you remember nothing else from today, or even nothing else from Romans 8, let the one thing you remember for the rest of your days, for the rest of your life, let it be this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Christian, God is most certainly, most assuredly for you. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word, thankful for this chapter and the time that we've been able to spend. As we, as we move on from this, help us not to move on from this truth. Let us return to these pages again, 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 until they sink so deeply in us. We cannot be removed. Help us, Father, to sing the praises and the wonders of your love, this great love that you have for us, that nothing and separate us from it. Help us to rest in the arms of your love as your children from now until into eternity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.